So uh, welcome to the fathers here today. Um, it's Father's Day, and uh, how many fathers we have out here? Many fathers. Well, thank you for being with us. Um, I'm going to teach a little bit on Father's Day today, um, but we want to really, really focus on God and, and the Father that He is. And we'll be going through a couple parts of Scripture for that today. Um, you can open to Luke 15. Um, that's the uh, parable of the prodigal son. So we're going to look at the father in that scripture. And later on, we'll go into uh, Genesis 5.1 and look at uh, Enoch, Methuselah's father. Um, cover a little bit of the history of Father's Day. Uh, this is something, as I did, you know, reading up on Father's Day, that I found quite interesting. And actually, I was listening to a Jerry Vine sermon um, and he gave the history of Father's Day. So let's, let's uh, take a look at that for a little bit. All right, thank you. <laughs> um, so Father's Day was originally started in 1910 by a lady named Sonora Dodd in Spokane, Washington. Um, the idea came to her while she was listening to a sermon given at her church for Mother's Day, and... Um, she didn't have a mother. She, she lost her mother early in life. And so her father was, you know, father and mother to her. And she thought it was befitting that we have a day to honor fathers. So that is um, how Father's Day got started. And the reason it's the third Sunday in June is because that's when it was her father's birthday. So that, that was pretty cool. Um, and the tradition spread throughout the nation. And in 1956 was signed uh, as a proclamation making the third Sunday of June the official Father's Day by, by Lyndon Johnson. So I didn't know that prior to preparing for this, and uh, I'm going to take this off. I'm going to be slamming it the whole time. Um, so let's dive into uh, Luke 15 together. We'll start in verse 11. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this. We'll break it down, and then... Um, well, I want to get into some statistics showing the importance of father, uh, father, fatherless, or of the fathers in the home, and the effects of fatherlessness, and that'll all tie in together. So, we'll start in verse eleven of Luke fifteen, and then he said, "A certain man had two sons, and the younger son of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me.'" So the father divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, but when he had spent all there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the, <clears throat> with the pods and that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, 
His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and are no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this is my son. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found, and they begin to be merry. So, to me, this parable is the greatest representation of who God is as a, as a father. Right? Um, we see the son falling away and then repenting and coming back. So let's let's break that down a little bit uh, as we work, we read. Um, in verses 1, or 11 through 12, um, that the younger son of this man's two sons approached him and wanted the father to give him what he had coming to him, his inheritance, which um, at that time, since he had another brother, the younger brother gets one-third of the estate, the older brother gets two-thirds of the larger portion of the estate. Um, and in the time period in which this parable was represented, it was pretty unusual for the father to um, divide his estate before he had passed, passed on. His sons would inherit that when he was gone. So the younger son coming to his father and asking for that inheritance before his father was dead was essentially like him saying, give me what's mine, you're dead to me. So that had to hurt the father a lot, right? Um, so... The son leaves, in verses 13 through 14, he leaves the father's home within days of receiving the portion of inheritance and moves to a far-off country, far from the comfort and safety of his father's home. Um, and he had everything he needed there at home. The father provided him everything that he needed. He didn't have to go anywhere. And um, all he had to do was stay with the father, but the son thought he knew better and chose to take everything and leave. So. Essentially what we see here in the first four verses of the parable is that the pro is, is us, that we are the prodigal son. This is how I look at this. Um, taking what God the Father, or, or God, the Father in this parable, blesses us or gives us so freely and how readily we waste it. Um, we read in verse 12 that this inheritance the son was getting was divided from his father li father's livelihood. So everything the father had Okay, um, God gave us everything he had in order for us to be forgiven of our sins. Okay, Jesus paid that price for us. Um, so that, that kind of parallels for me in this, is that that inheritance is what Jesus has gotten us. Um, and how many times in our lives, you know, I was thinking about this, have we taken what God freely gives us, especially our free will, and we turn our backs on God and essentially use it against him. Um, you know, we ask him to answer our prayers for whatever's on our hearts, and when he answers them, um, we turn our backs on him as if he doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, we ask, for, we ask in prayer for God to bless us with uh, what we think we need, um, even sometimes with, <laughs> with, a, with an ask, you know, if, if you give me this, I'll never do this again, or such and such sin, right? 
Um, I've done that many times in my life. Um, you know, I'll never do this sin again if you just take this. Um, it's as if we think we can barter with God like he's some cheap pawn shop owner, you know? And, um, you know, we, like, we, can, we can barter with him. Like, we can try to give him what he wants, and then he'll give us what we want. But he doesn't need anything from us. He's God. He has everything. We get everything we have from him. Um, yeah, so we forget too quickly that God does not need us, and we need him. And at times when we navigate the hurts in life, we turn to him, cry out to him in our pain, ask God to take it away. We pray for this until he takes that pain away. We remember that for a little bit, what he's done for us, and then we slowly fade away. Like that song from uh, Who is the Casting Crowns, a slow fade, we just start to slowly fade away as we go back into the comforts that we once knew. Okay? Um, So we move on to comfort with what he's blessed us and forget about him. So in this parable... Uh, we don't see the father in the parable, parable get angry, um, although I'm sure it hurt a bit when his son asked him to give everything and concern him. Um, but we see him freely give the son what he asked for. Um, you know, and this is kind of representative of how freely God gives to us. You know, if we pray for it, we ask for it, he'll give it to us, and he'll work it for our good. Um, and I can imagine the father, through this time before the son left, between giving him what he wants and the son leaving, tried to talk the son out of it, right? Like, we will try to teach our kids and tell them, you know, give them warnings like, if you do this, it's going to hurt. You don't stick your finger in that light socket, it's going to hurt. But the temptation is there, right? Like, I remember when I was younger, um, this is when I was really little. I don't know how I even remember it. I mean, Dad, maybe you remember this. You and Mom were talking to me in the kitchen and she just turned the burner off on the stove and told me not to touch it because it was hot. And I remember this. You two walked out of the kitchen, and I was sitting on the counter, and I remember looking at that burner, and I was like, all right. I found out it was hot, right? (laughs) I paid a consequence for not listening to my father. Um, So we at times know as parents that we must let our children go and learn for themselves. This, to me, is a great representation of how God freely gives or blesses us in our lives. God, the Father, freely gives us what is rightfully his, the Father's livelihood. Everything, <clears throat> everything comes from... I'm going to take a drink of water. Everything we have comes from him. And we as a society are a society of mine, aren't we? Does anybody ever, anybody ever watch uh, Finding Nemo? <laughs> Remember the part with the flock of seagulls? And all I can say is mine, 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 right? That's how we are. Like everything is mine and we want it now, okay? And we live as if God is here to serve us and he owes us. He owes us nothing. He gave us everything. Do you remember the, whoops, I got ahead of myself there, right? Um, So we're so focused on what we think is ours that we forget who it comes from in the first place. And when we lose sight of that, we stray. Give me what's mine, but it's rightfully the Father's. 
So the son leaves and has zero intention of coming back home. Uh, we read in verse 13 that the young son heads off to this faraway place. And while he was there, he wastes what the father had given him on sinful living. The son's sinful and prodigal way of living had brought him to a place far away from his father. Here we see sin separating us from God, our father. The son's sinful choices had separated him from God. In this faraway place, the son is no longer close to the father and had no, and no longer in close fellowship with him. Due, um, oh my gosh. Oh, in close fellowship, do this. Okay. Uh, we go on to read in verse 14 that this choice to dive into sinful living caused the son to be in want. Again, we are reminded here that the son separated from the father by his sinful life choices and is serving the consequence for that separation from the father. The son had all he ever needed as long as he stayed close to the father. Um, he is only in want because he wasted what the father had freely given him. Uh, the son wasn't a wise steward, wise steward of what the father had given him. And we're reminded in Psalm 23 of the goodness of God and his provision. This was something that popped into my head as I was studying this. Um, we all know Psalm 23. It's, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, and he leads me in the path paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So God's got us. Um, in verse uh, 15, we see the son become desperate for help, and he goes to a local farmer and binds himself as, to him as a servant. Um, and this, this farmer puts him in charge of taking care of his, his pigs, his swine. Um, so the... Did I mess that up? Oh, yeah. Okay, we're going to go to verse 16 first. So verse 16 indicates that the son was starving um, and that he couldn't find anyone to give him anything and would have eaten what the swine were being fed just to fill his stomach. This represents a spiritual hunger that we end up feeling um, when we are separated by God, by our sinful living. We try to fill that void with everything the world offers, and nothing can fulfill that, that God-shaped hole in our hearts, right? I've been there many times in my life. Um, my, my parents went through a divorce when I was really young. And so, you know, my dad couldn't be there uh, all the time. You know, it was certain weekends of the, of the month. Um, so there was, there was that void in, in my life. And as I grew older, I, I struggled a lot with emotions and trying to feel good and better. And I strayed from God. Like, I, I tried to fill those voids mostly with, with alcohol and having a good time because it was the only way that I could feel normal and accepted, right? It kind of dulled everything. But as soon as I was done with that good time, those feelings would come back, okay? Um, until I turned my life to God, he, he took care of all that. Like, I don't, I don't feel that anymore, right? So God fulfills everything that, that, we, that we need. Um, so... These things we seek in the world, they may fill us up for a short time, but they never really fully satisfies. And the ironic part to the verse of the son being uh, forced to feed and serve the pigs is that um, swine were seen as unclean animals to the Jewish people. 
And they were told in Leviticus to not have anything to do with him. Don't touch him, don't eat him, nothing. So he is now in the same position as the animals that they see is unclean. He's, he's been made unclean by his sin. Um, in verse 17, we read that the son um, came to himself. So he had a realization of where he was and where his choices have gotten him. Um, this tells us that he had a realization of where he was and, where it, and how he had gotten there. And he was at rock bottom in life, and he needed to do something. So he devises a plan to return to his father, beg for forgiveness, hoping that he become, can become a servant in his father's home, unworthy of being called his father's son anymore. Um, so here the son realizes the sinful state he's in, knows the only way he could be restored is by returning to his father, repentance, and asking for forgiveness of sins, and begging his father to accept him back as a servant in his home. Um, verses 20 to 21, we are told that the sons return home. He rose and came to his father, and here we're painted a beautiful picture, aren't we? As the son nears his father's home, the father sees him coming, and we're told that he's still a far way off. Um, and it shows us that the father's been watching and waiting for his son's return, that he made it a habit to look for his son's return. Um, so when I read that the father ran towards the son, um, and we know it's only because we're told that the father had compassion, but I wonder what was running through the son's mind. Like he just took everything from his father, turned his back on him, acted like he was dead. If I was wronged by somebody, I'd probably be pretty mad, and I'd be running towards them for a different reason. You know, I wonder if the father's like arms were in the air or something, and you know, the son's like, oh boy, here we go, I'm going to get beaten. But the father doesn't do that. He has compassion on the son, okay? He has compassion on the son because the son at this point was barefooted, was probably dirty, and the father could see his condition, just like God knows our condition and our sin, right? So God has compassion on us. Um, and so he greeted his son with joy, hugged him around the neck, and gave him this big kiss. Not what I'm sure he was expecting. So we see God's compassion for us also in Matthew uh, 14 when he feeds the 5,000. Jesus saw the multitude and had compassion on them and healed their sick, is what we read. So Jesus saw their spiritual condition just like the father in in this passage saw his son's condition and felt for him, and his heart was softened. God knows our condition and knows our sickness is sin, and he's the ultimate healer. He can take all that away, and he did through Jesus Christ. So what a reaction. I bet that's not the reaction that most of us would have. We'd still be holding that hurt that that child made us feel and um, would, in a sense, make him feel it too. Because that's how we are. It's kind of vengeful. We want to make, when we hurt, we want people to hurt too, right? Um, So however, this father had compassion toward his lost son and celebrated his return, storing the prodigals back to sonship in his home. He didn't send his son away or shame him. He ran up to him and embraced him. The father welcomed his lost son home, no questions asked. The prodigal never even got his speech out. He just asked for forgiveness, and the father was like, it's done. Wipe slate clean. 
Okay, he put, he, uh, so the father then tells his servants to get a robe and put it on his son um, and uh, to get a ring and put it on his son's finger. This ring was a signet that signified him as part of a family, as a son, right? And the significance of the sandals, only servants or slaves wore barefoot or went barefooted. So he's now brought back in that family and restored by coming back to the father. So the father is basically claiming, you are mine. How great a love did this father have for his child? The father is God. Through this parable, we can see ourselves as the last prodigal son, wasting our ways through life, squandering the great blessings and love that the Father has given us. We see here that when we fall into sin and are separated from God, that God will let us fail. God will let us struggle, and we end up in that faraway place. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners far away, Christ died for us. We were separated and lost from God, but he was, but he was with us and... In our sinful condition, <laughs> and because of his great love for us, he had compassion and grace towards us and made a way through his son Jesus to be restored. Sometimes in order to come back to God, we need to hit rock bottom in our lives and see him fully. Sometimes we need to be broken. And don't, afraid, don't be afraid to be broken. When I look back at places of brokenness in my life, it's actually a beautiful thing. When I see people broken, and they're broken for Jesus, and they come to God, that is a really beautiful place for them to be. So never be afraid to, to let, your, let your heart break. God will put that back together. Um, so this parable is a great reminder that when, or that we always have a way back home to our Father. He gave us that way through his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. John 3.16 tells us this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Uh, salvation is free for the taking, and we must make that choice. God isn't going to force us into a relationship with him. Through this parable, I think we get one of the best views of who God is to us. God is patient with us, waiting. He doesn't handpick the ones who get to come home. And some religions will teach you that, which is Calvinism, that God handpicks you. He doesn't. It's a clear choice that you have to make, okay? God doesn't force himself on anybody. So let us make that choice to follow him. Uh, Jesus tells us in his own words in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. We have that choice to make, a call that we have in our hearts from the day we are born. It is up to us to answer that call. That knock at the door won't always be there. One day, it'll be too late. Some of us won't answer that door because we refuse to let him in. And when we do call Jesus near, he will say, away from me, I never knew you. How scary is that? I think about that a lot. when we answer the call, we humble ourselves before our Father with a repentant heart and ask for forgiveness in turn from our sinful ways. We are restored as a child of the one true God, 
God will welcome you back, no questions asked. And what a great father we have. Um, wanted to provide a little encouragement here. There's always a saying that God won't give you too much that or too much that you can't handle, something like that. I think we've all heard that. I just want to encourage people that yes, He will. That's a lie. Um, there's been many times in my life where God or where the world has thrown too much for me to handle in there, right? And I try to handle it on my own, okay? Um, and I can't handle that without God. I end up going to Him every time, okay? So this world will throw too much for you to handle, and God will let you go through it so that we come to him. Um, and the son in the parable shows us that. The world chewed him up, took all they had, and spit him out. And God will let us struggle through it, and will eventually become too much for us. That's when we turn to him. He helps us through it and works it out for our own good. The Bible tells us that God works everything for the good of those who love him. If we truly have a repentant heart, Turn from our sins, come back to him. He is quick to forgive and forget. As soon as we do that, he wipes the slate, the slate clean, just like the father in the parable did, and welcomes us home with open arms, clothes us in righteousness that only can come from the father, and marks us as his own, forgiven. So as we heard from the worship team this morning, and thank you, Steve, for, for singing that song, Run to the Father, that one, I listen to that song all the time. That's a beautiful song, and I think it sums up this parable real well. Um, you know, the verses, I run to the Father, I fall into grace. We see that in the parable as the, as the, as the Father hugs that son. Um, as I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again. We can, we're not perfect, we're going to continue to screw up in life, right? The importance is if we realize that sin and we take it to God, and we have a repentant heart, and we can do this over and over and over again. Um, all right, so I wanted to kind of get into some, some real-world statistics on uh, fatherless homes. And these, uh, I read a, a few articles, and they're all, they're all kind of repetitive. They all give you the same statistics. But I thought some of these were pretty shocking. I didn't know the numbers were this high. And especially the statistic about suicide. That is heartbreaking, okay? I've had, I've lost two people in my life to that, okay? Has anybody else in here had an experience with that? Lost people? It's hurtful. It's very hurtful. Um, the National Center for Fathering and Fatherless Homes and Fathers.com gave these statistics. They're exactly the same. 85% of youths in prison come from fatherless homes. 12% of children in married families were living in poverty compared to 44% of children in mother-only families. And that's not a dig on mothers. That's just reiterating the importance of having a father in the family, right? 71% of high school dropouts, droplets, 71% of high school dropouts come from a fatherless home. Fatherless children have more trouble academically, more likely to be truant, excluded from school activities, and more likely to leave school by age 16, and are less likely to achieve, achieve academic and professional achievements as adults. 90% of all homeless runaway children are from fatherless homes. Nearly 25 million children 
live without their biological father. 25 million. Isn't that shocking? I wouldn't think it was 25 million. I can imagine leaving my kids, you know? 60% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. Um, here, I'm getting all choked up. Maybe we'll come back to that one. Adolescent fathers and homes are more likely to become sexually active compared to adolescents. Sorry, kids, cover your ears. Um, compared to adolescents living in a home where their biological fathers are present. So here we can um, look at some positives. Um, we don't necessarily need fathers in our life. Sometimes we need father figures. I had those um, in my grandfather when my, when my dad couldn't be there. I have a great dad. Trust me, I'll touch on that in a little bit. But when my dad couldn't be there, I had a grandfather that cared for me, taught me a lot about life, and a bunch of uncles that surrounded me with love and took me under their wings. And that really helped. So when kids have a mentor or a father figure, they're 55% more likely to enroll in college, 78% more likely to volunteer regularly, so they take pride in, in helping others, um, 130% more likely to hold leadership positions because they have that example and are led by somebody that showed them how to be a leader. 40%, 46% less likely to be involved with drugs. And drugs, that, that, that's another one of those things that when we're searching for something, we're looking for something, it's just like alcohol, we're looking for something to fill the void. And it's just such a temporary thing, like you need, you need the next step and the next step and the next step. Right. Um, so let's go back to the suicide. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for individuals. Can anybody tell me what the youngest age in this is? Take a guess. Five. Five to 24 years old. Five years old. What are we doing? <laughs> How does a kid even think of that? How does a kid even know what life is at that point? How is a kid making a decision that it is, life is so hopeless at that point that they're going to end it. A child. That is so sad. 22% of high school students say they seriously considered suicide within the past year. 3 in 10 females considered attempting suicide with 24% of those going as far as creating a suicide plan. Like they were going to go through with it. Man. Recent data shows that 50%, half, more than 50%, it's more than half, of middle and high school, middle age, or middle school and high school age girls report feeling hopeless and depressed. The simplest way to put these stats into form is that us as dads matter and we need to be involved. Um, I'm not saying all your moms don't matter, but dads matter too. Each parent, mother and father, plays a significant role in the development of a child and their well-being and their purpose. Um, and we need to point them to their true purpose, God. 
The Bible says that God is our creator and designer and loves us. He gives us a reason for, for living and offers, a, offers us hope in this life and beyond through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. All of these stats that we look at come from kids that don't know what their purpose is. They don't know that God created them for a reason, that God loves them, and that they, have, that they have a purpose. They lose their purpose when they start feeling this way and they start searching for things to fill, to fill that void I keep mentioning. And when those things don't fulfill them, they keep searching for something else. And I'm sure that they get to the end of feeling fulfilled and, and it's just hopeless when, you, when we're putting our faith in those things. It's important for us as dads not only to leave them to follow us, but make sure that we're following Christ, right? They're following in our footsteps. So we see when a father is absent that that child goes through life with a huge void and continues to try to fill it. The stats I just shared prove that. Even with the introduction of a mentor as a father figure, the statistical outlook for a child improves dramatically. So dads, um, how do we as dads help our kids to avoid feeling hopeless and lost? How do we prepare them to face the world with a Christian perspective? And how do we give them a purpose? The best way, and I use this a lot in ministry writing, I'm gonna kind of shoot from the hip here, maybe that's a little better, um, is to be the example that God has created us to be. I use that a lot when I had a ministry page on Facebook. I would always end it with, be the example that God has created you to be. That's the best way that we can lead our families. Um, and the example that we lead our families with and our kids with matters. By doing this, we show our kids how to be followers. Okay? We show them how to be a follower, to be a leader. We show them to lead or to follow Christ. Okay? Um, so when our kids are looking for their purpose, let's teach them who it is, who it is found in, so they won't search for the world and for the things in this world. Because if we don't show them who they are, the world's going to show them who they aren't. Kids have lost their identities in today's society. If we look at kids today, there's this thing going around. Kids actually think they're animals. They're called furries. Like they're, you know, or they're non-binary. There's no purpose to them. They're just created. They're not even created. They're just, they're an accident, a, a, an evolutionary accident. They're, there's no purpose, right? And we're, we're teaching them in our schools that they can be anything that they want to be, okay? Boys think that they can be girls, and girls think that they can be boys. They have lost their purpose. They have lost their God-created identity. Okay? The more we move away to being a godless society, the less our children know who they are. And that is the devil's, the devil's job, right? Satan comes to kill and destroy. He prowls, like, prowls around like a lion. So let's look, at, let's look at sin and how it is in the world and how the devil operates, right? So when we find out that we have a mouse problem in our house, we put a trap out for them, and we bait it with something that they just can't resist, right? And eventually, you know, 
that mouse takes that bait and is caught in the trap and dead, right? Well, the devil baits traps for us and baits them with our favorite sins, right? So the good thing is, though, when we throw all caution to the wind and know that we shouldn't take that bait, and we do, and that trap shuts on us, we have a way out. And that, that way is Jesus. And Jesus points us to the Father. He's our connection to the Father. Our kids are going to make mistakes in life. Um, and they're going to fail. And we have to teach them to, to navigate those failures. And the best way is to teach them to turn to God every time. Uh, we need to teach them to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to teach our kids and, and lead them in a way that um, teaches them to have more influence over the world and the world having influence over them. Proverbs 22.6 tells us to train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, our roads might take <laughs> little detours in our lives, like I know my has, it's, the, my road looks like this, Okay. Um, it's not a straight path. But I always knew in my heart when I made those mistakes that I could always come back to God. Um, and that's important to show our children that. Um, so are we showing them where our devotion lies in life? Okay, God's devotion is completely, 100% to us. And we should be completely devoted to him as well in everything we do. Um, are we more devoted? So do we claim to have faith in Christ, but only show that on Sunday mornings, right? A lot of people, the only way that we ever get Christ or church is that there's one hour on Sundays, and then we leave, and I have nothing to do with them. Our kids see that, okay? If we're really claiming that Jesus Christ is this wonderful Savior, then we ought to live like it. So are we more, devo- more devoted to the game after church, or hunting, or fishing, good times with the boys, our jobs, than we are to what we claim to live for. If we are, then our faith lies not in Christ, but the things of this world. We are teaching them to put everything else, everything else ahead of Christ, and that he is secondary. And dads, Christ died for us, okay? He needs to be first. And doesn't it deserve, doesn't that, him dying for us, doesn't that, you know, deserve more than just Sunday morning lip service and putting on a good show? Trust me, your kids will see right through that in time. Um, and so will everyone else. Um, in college, I used to claim to be a big Christian. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and we'll let people know that. But I, in turn, would turn around and live like everybody else in my college house is living. Partying it up, going out, going out every night, right? Living exactly opposite the way I said I felt, or I, I actually believed. And I asked one of my uh, college roommates after we graduated a couple of years, and he said that he didn't believe in God, and that when he looks at Christians, he doesn't see any difference. And I asked him that if I was one of those examples, and he said, yeah. And that was, that was hard to hear. But I also needed to hear it, right? He called me out, and I'm thankful for that. Okay, so are we teaching our kids to pursue God and honor God with everything we do? Are we teaching them to replace, or are we teaching them to replace uh, God with little gods? Um, 
Okay, are we teaching them to be daily devoted, spending time in the Word of God, or do we spend the money we earn to support our families uh, from the talents God gave us to be absent from them in the pursuit of their replacements? Um, working hard and earning a lot of money doesn't make you a good father, okay? And in America, that's what we've had driven into our heads, that we're supposed to work, 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 money, money, money. So as we're out doing that, you know, we're, we're away from our family, okay? Um, so doing that doesn't make you a good father, it makes you a good employee. And we put so much emphasis on work on our society, that we end up forsaking our families for it. And in the end, we end up with, uh, I'm sorry, what do we end up in the, in the end, really? Um, it's just a big pile of money and a lonely house without memories. Put time into your kids, you know. Work will always be there. Your kids won't, okay? They're going to be gone one day. Um, a good example of this is uh, I just got out of working in the restoration industry, you know, fire, water damage. Um, the owners of these companies, I don't know a married one. Their jobs are so demanding, it's 24-7, that they have no time for anything but that. They're married to their jobs. Some of them have been through multiple marriages, and they're going on to the next one. It doesn't last. So there's a Brennan man... Brennan Manning quote that really runs through my head all the time and speaks to me and really called me out in the way that I was living the example that I was living with. Um, this is the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelieving. So with the examples that were, you know, leading with are, are those reflecting our faith like we really believe it, like our children believe it? Or are we teaching our children to give lift service to God, some weekly routine that we, don't, that we just do on Sundays, just because? Are we teaching them to live out our faith beyond those church doors? Are we creating good examples? God blessed us with these little minds, and he puts us in charge of their well-being. Should we be more careful in how we raise them to act? Our families, men, are our first ministries, our wives and our children. Um, this is where we should be putting most of our time, not into things that pull us away. They are our first priority. And this is something that I'm just learning. I used to hunt a lot, fish a lot. That took priority over, um, over my family, frustrated my wife a number of times. Um, and you know, I'm still doing mega face plants in front of my family on the floor. Uh, in trying to learn this, but, but we're learning. Um, you and your wife are the first examples of marriage that our sons and daughters are going to see. Fathers, are we loving our wives in a way that reflects the way Christ loved the church, his bride, us? In Ephesians, we are encouraged in uh, chapter 5, verse 12, the husband's life, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Dedicate yourselves to her, men. Well, that's not part of it. <laughs> Dedicate yourselves to her, men. Um, you, are, you are a son's first example of what marriage is supposed to look like and the first example of how he is to treat his wife someday. And you, men, are your daughter's first example of what her one-day husband should be treating her like. Um, make sure you treat your wife right. It matters how we talk to, look at, and care for our wives. My wife and I try to do date nights with our kids every so often. 
Like she'll go out with Levi, I'll go out with Brielle. And these are really important ways to show our kids how to treat their significant other when they get to that age and are looking for a, for a good spouse. And if we don't model that for them, how are they ever going to know, right? The world's certainly not going to show them how they should treat a woman, right? Just look at magazines, all right? We don't, we don't treat girls right and give them the, the proper examples to look up to. Okay. So dads, be patient, humble, and understanding. Just like the father in the parable, we must not take our anger out on our children for the mistakes they make. When they sin against us or God, be forgiving. Teach them what forgiveness looks like. Teach them what repentance looks like. Let them see you make mistakes. Admit when you're wrong. Say you're sorry. Realize that just like you, they aren't going to figure it out overnight. This is a lifetime of learning and walking with God. And at least with us by their side, we can point them in the right direction. And dads, be present. You know how you can be a, a, a father in a home but still be absent? Just because you're a father in a home doesn't mean you're actually there. Okay? This is something, again, my wife and I had um, many conversations about when I was a younger father. Um, she said that, that she had many lonely years. And that broke my heart. And I was there, but I wasn't. My mind was always somewhere else. I was looking for the next best thing. How am I going to get out of the house? And she was basically a single parent. Married, but single. Don't do that to your wives, fellas. So be present. Um, be involved. You know, anything your kids are involved in, get into it with them. Um, uh, let's see. So... <laughs> My dad was a really good example of this when I was younger. Every time I would ask him to do something, take me fishing, and we lived in the UP, and you had at least a half-hour drive to everything, like, he would stop what he was doing, and we would just go. We'd load up the canoe, and we would go. No matter what I asked him to do, he would do. I know that I don't do that with my kids, okay? I tell them, no, I'm too tired, I'm too this. Work was too hard. My dad never said that to me. So I always try to carry that as a reminder in my own head. Okay, that's how we should be as a, as a, as a parent. Um, in the uh, days of social media, put down the phone, shut off the TV, and actually listen to your kids when they come up to you and talk. Okay, don't pretend that you're listening. Don't pretend that you can multitask and look at your phone and listen at the same time. Really give them your attention. They're talking to you for a reason. Okay? Love them enough to give them that attention. And remember that our kids are only with us for a little while. Before you know it, they're gone to live a life of their own. And you'll have all the time in the world on your hands to do whatever you want to do. And you'll be sitting there wishing that your kids were home. And be vulnerable. Okay? Let them see you hurt and that it's okay. Um, as modern men, this is speaking to sons. We are taught to be tough, emotionless beings. Like nothing can get to us, right? That is such a lie. I grew up with that, and I held so much in that it ended up hurting me. I held so much in. And we're taught to, you know, show no emotion. Um, whoop. That's not supposed to be there. 
So the first example that I had where this started to change for me was in a Green Bay men's uh, group study where we were forced to get into groups with guys we didn't know and um, talk about our past and what we've held in and what our hurts were. That was a hard thing to do, but once I started opening up, all of that hurt and emotion started coming out. And I was able to heal, right? I was able to forgive people that had hurt me in my past. And it was such a freeing thing, okay? So if we don't do this, if we don't teach them how to hurt, if we don't teach them how to forgive and navigate those emotions, um, we're going to create detached little robots who will never know how to handle emotions when they come up in life. And I'm glad I learned how to be vulnerable, okay? Um, and be teachable. As much as we try to teach our kids well, sometimes they teach us. God used my kids to change my life, okay? Um, first example I remember is um, with my son Levi. Um, do you remember the, the Packer game? Uh, boy, this was 2013. I think it was Matt Flynn and who was the Lions quarterback back then? He just won a Super Bowl at the Rams. Stafford. They each threw for like 1,000 yards and 52 touchdowns. It was great. You know, we're all celebrating. But when I got home, I was in no condition to be in front of my child, right? And I remember being on the couch and fading out. And something was shaking me, but I didn't know what. And I looked, and it was my son. He was only like, he must have been only a little bit over a year because he was just learning how to walk. And um, in that moment, I looked at him, and I just broke down. I knew that if I continued going down the road that I was on, that my son would think this was normal and okay to be in that condition. And that really woke me up, okay? And God did that. I know God did that, Okay. Um, David, you can you put that slide up? That's my little girl, Brielle. Um, so this, uh, I took this picture of her when we were on a family vacation in Door County. Um, and I've been, you know, I've thought about this moment a lot since. So I was paying more attention to my phone at this moment than I was to my own daughter who was talking to me, but I was doing this. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And she got quiet for a little bit. And um, this let me read, the, the, read what I wrote, and uh, we'll, we'll go into that. Um, so I caught my daughter looking at me through this playground telescope while we were on vacation in Door County a few weeks back. I've been thinking about that moment since. This picture in that moment really put something in perspective. That is the way, and that is... That, and that something is the way we conduct ourselves in front of others, especially our children. How many times have we acted in an adverse way uh, towards someone or something in the presence of our children? Most of the time we write it off with, oh, oh, they're too young to notice, or they won't remember that. But in many cases they do, and they end up acting and treating others in the same manner as the example that they witness out of their parents. Our children are always watching our actions and hearing our words. We are their first examples in how they will grow up and conduct themselves. Remember the song, the verse, Be careful, little eyes, what you see? Well, what they see is what we do. Not only are our children seeing our actions, so is God. Our kids and wives are our first ministries. And this, in this moment, as small as it was in time, will forever be in my mind. 
When I noticed my daughter watching me playfully through this playground toy, she said to me, Daddy, I see you. Slap me right across the face. So do the best example to be the example God has created you to be in all you do. And when your children watch you, who do they see? So I'm thankful that being a parent has really, has really changed my life. Um, there, you know, kids are often a direct reflection of their parents and their attitudes and actions. So we need to be careful there. Um, so, oh, where are we here? Oh, yep, back up. So I want to look. How many fathers here came to faith after they became fathers? Wes? All right, a few of us, me. So if we go to Genesis 5 and verse 21, we're going to learn about um, Methuselah's dad, Enoch. In that verse, and you don't have to turn to it, you can. Um, Enoch came to faith after he uh, fathered Methuselah. So something had to happen that changed the way he was, that changed the road that he was on. And that happened after, you know, he was, he was God. I mean, he was God. After God blessed him with a child. Um, so, so as we, as we come to faith after we have children, our children may know us as something different than what God is making us to be. Okay? And they're going to have a hard time accepting who God is making us because they remember who we were. Right? So as we're making these changes... Okay, make sure that the changes we say we are going through are actually happening. Um, you have any David Platt, David Platt fans here? I listen to him a lot. Um, and he gives a really good analogy of what coming to Christ should look like, right? So he explains it as, say I was going to preach at church, and you, you guys, I was really late, like 20 minutes late, empty podium, you guys are just sitting there waiting. 15, 20 minutes goes by, and I run up, run up here, and I'm out of breath. And I tell you that, well, when I was on my way here, I got a flat tire on the interstate, and I had to change it. Well, when I got the tire back on, I stepped back, and I stepped into traffic, and I got hit by a truck, and it really hurt. You would know that at that point that if I just looked normal, that I was deceived or I was lying, because I don't look anything different from how I was before, yet I said something dramatic happened to me, right? Something that should have changed the way I looked, right? So if we claim that Christ changes us so greatly, our lives should reflect that, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So we'll wrap this up here. Um, so dads matter. Um, and the way we lead our families matters. So many of us are searching today, searching for our purpose in life, searching for a connection, and the world will point us to everything it has to offer. And we saw those statistics that I shared about fatherless homes, right? Um, drugs, sexual activity, suicide. Kids are hurting and searching to fill the void, and most end up filling that void with something that doesn't last. It satisfies them temporarily, and they lose that momentary fulfillment and move on 
the next temporary fix that the world has to offer for them. They keep searching and searching. We need to make it a priority in our lives with our kids that we point them to Christ in everything. He is our purpose. We are created for him, and only he defines us, nothing else. Jesus told the woman at the well that what she was searching for will never satisfy her. She will keep returning for more and more. But what he offered her, the living water, would fulfill her. Jesus is eternal. Everything here is temporal. Jesus quenches that never-ending spiritual search we all long for. God is good. And God, and God is good. There is nothing that we have done that he won't forgive us for. If you're wandering through life searching for your purpose, he is waiting for you with open arms and a place for you ready in his home. Father, we thank you today. Um, we thank, thank you for the opportunity to celebrate you as our Father. We ask that you remember that you hold our purpose in our life and that nobody else does. And there's nothing in this world that can separate us from you. You are a good, good Father, and we love you. And help us to always use your word to guide us and to help us to be that example that you have created us to be, not only to the world, but to our families. In Jesus' name, amen.